This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello, you are very welcome to The Tonight Show. The Doyle makes its return after the long summer recess. Orla seemed confused as to who was actually leading the country. Perhaps he was just getting ahead of himself. Taoiseach, please. Leader's questions. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Can I thank you for that? That unparalleled vote of confidence, Cairngorm. I'm, I'm very touched. Meanwhile, in more serious business, energy dominates in Leinster House today as the Taoiseach warns of a prolonged energy crisis. Cabinet signs off an increase to the minimum wage, but is it enough? And can employers afford it? The CAF Trio 35 plead with Minister for Health Stephen Donnelly for access to life-changing cystic fibrosis drugs. Claire Brock speaks to one family whose child has been affected. It's just stuck in stalemate. Like, it's, it's sitting between these two organisations. Uh, it hasn't moved anywhere in the last 12 months. And later, as the mourning period continues in the UK over Queen Elizabeth's death, are anti-royalist voices being suppressed? Do join the conversation online as always with your comments and your questions. It's hashtag tonight VMTV. First up tonight, TDs and Senators took to their seats in Leinster House for the first time since the summer recess. While fuel weighed heavily on the agenda, protests outside caused a bit of heat. Well, joining me in studio to discuss this and more is People Before Profit TD, Paul Murphy, Fine Gael Senator John McGahan, and political correspondent with the Irish Examiner, Kira Phelan. And you're all very welcome to the programme. Uh, Paul, I want to start with you because it was the first day back in the dial today. There were a number of interest groups protesting uh, outside the dial. But there was an incident, wasn't there, when you yourself left the dial to join a protest outside and you were approached by another group. Tell me what happened. Yeah, so I was going out to participate in a protest by a group called Not Our Fault, which is campaigning for 100% redress for the 100,000 apartments and uh, apartment and duplex owners who are affected by defects and facing bills of up to €25,000. So I was going out there, there was a far-right um, protest um, about vaccines, lockdown, abortion, um, alleging that people who are in favour of objective sex education are paedophiles. Um, and basically a group of them, maybe 20 to 30, surrounded me when I came out and were up in my face, you know, calling me a pedo, 
saying whatever about vaccines and killing children and all this kind of stuff. Um, and then certainly one of them kind of kicked me in an attempt to make me trip over, I think. Um, I mean... Were you hurt in any way? No, no. Do you I'm, intend to press charges? I'm fine. I, I've, I've, you know, I, I spent time in a, in a jail in Israel when I was trying to uh, break the blockade of Gaza. I'm, I'm not intimidated by this. I'm not bothered by it. Um, but what I would say is I, I think what they did today reveals what they're about, which is about dividing people. I mean, there was many very, very worthy causes outside the doll. There was people protesting for the 35 children with cystic fibrosis who we're going to be talking about later, PhD students protesting, security officers protesting, cost of living people, the apartment redress people, PhD students, loads of different people protesting. And really what they're about is dividing people, whereas we, we need to bring everyone together into a cost of living movement. The cost of living crisis affects you regardless of your gender, your sex, your color, your nationality, and we need to bring all of that as opposed to they want to divide people, which is actually, in my opinion, those who are benefiting from these crises, the people making yeah. big profits, they want to see people divided. Uh, John, your reaction? Yeah, I think it's very worrying. Um, we have to always back the right to protest. You know, Paul has been on many protests himself. Mm. I have as well. The right to protest, uh, to protest is fundamental for any democracy. And, I and plenty think... of those pro protests that you've been involved with, Paul, have become hot and heated. And, you know, people are particularly angry about whatever issue they are that they're protesting about. But I also think it's very important that despite how abhorrent those views were today, and I was outside Leinster House today and it was nasty. It was particularly nasty. And it took away from important protests like cystic fibrosis who were there to meet with TDs and senators. But the point about it is, no matter how abhorrent their views are, it's still important for us to hear those views, to realise how off the wall these people are and that those views must be challenged and must be rebutted at every single stage. And we can't do that if those, those people, no matter how abhorrent they are, don't have a right to protest. So whether we all disagree with it, it was disgusting what they talked about and what they said to Paul and elsewhere, but unfortunately, in a free and open democracy, those people are entitled to protest. All right, look, we don't have any of those individuals here in the studio to um, defend themselves. I just want to make that point. Uh, moving on, Kira, uh, you were outside, but you were also inside uh, Dial Aaron uh, today. It got pretty heated in there too. It did, uh, particularly as well over the energy crisis, obviously, um, with, like I said, the Dáil turn coming back. And I suppose TDs have had a couple of weeks off and are back in their constituencies and I'm sure um, Paul and John can you know say how bad the situation actually is. A number of TDs had said that the crisis is so bad for households and for businesses as well that it's the worst that it's ever been for people and they're really struggling and do not know how they're going to cope. And this is what they were hearing over the summer months. Yeah yeah and they're really concerned about the situation in the coming months ahead, particularly the winter, because um, right now a lot of people may not have the heating on, but that's going to change. Like we even see the evenings getting darker now and how, how significant those bills are going to be in the coming weeks. So the government has a, a major, major job to do in the coming weeks in protecting people and comfort them, comforting them, in particular pensioners and elderly people or people in rural communities who um, may not have you know, sufficient heat in their homes. So, you know, it's uh, the Taoiseach, like you mentioned, said that a warning that this is going to be a prolonged crisis. And actually, for I, I found it extraordinary for him to say that the government will intervene and we will help people through winter. But he also mentioned into March, and that's in six months' time. Now, before coming on air, um, Tánaiste Leo Vradkar actually told his uh, Fine Gael parliamentary party meeting tonight that government should keep some reserves in place, should hold something back because the government may need to intervene again next year if the... Pre 
budget 2024. This is at some stage, perhaps yes. in February, March, April next year. I'd say further, possibly, because if you have the Taoiseach saying March and the Dáil today, and then the Taoiseach going further, actually further and saying that we need to keep resources back for next year because of the unpredictability of the energy market. Um, Paul, the Taoiseach, uh, as he did say today, this is going to be prolonged, but he said there will be a range of measures introduced in the budget in less than two weeks that will put money into people's pocket and will reduce those electricity bills. We hear you, basically, is what he said. That's what you wanted to hear today, wasn't it? But, but they're not listening. I mean, it's, it's now almost a year since we put the first motion in the doll calling for price controls on energy, on food, on essential things, something that the government has power to do and calling for the renationalisation of the energy supply sector. Um, and that's at the, the centre of this problem is profiteering. If you look at the big oil and gas companies, they have tripled or quadrupled their profits year on year. But it is not just them. The electricity companies in this country, Board Gosh, SSE Electricity, Electric Ireland, all of them are announcing record profits. The big food companies also announcing record profits. The big corporate yeah, landlords we- announcing record So. We need to deal with the root issue here, which is that, you know, it's being said that the energy market is broken. Um, but it, it's broken because it's being designed around production for profit. It's precisely because it's a market. OK, Instead, but sort of just for the ownership. here and now, I yeah. suppose, as people are trying to figure out a way to deal with these bills, the Taoiseach saying, we hear you, there will be measures introduced specifically to deal with the energy, but there will be other measures, whether it's social welfare or taxation or reduction in childcare fees, all of these things will put more money in your pocket so that right now you can be confident you're going to get through these winter months. Is that not what you wanted? Well, we want to see that happening. The best way to make as much of that happen as possible is for tens of thousands of people to be on the streets on Saturday week, Saturday the 24th of September, the cost of living national pro- protest at half two at Parnell Square. And um, I fear what all the reports we're hearing is the government are going to give people an energy credit but they're not going to match that with any price controls. They're going to match that with, with nationalisation. So therefore, it means simply giving over money to these profiteering companies as opposed to dealing with the root issue, which is that we shouldn't organise energy on the basis of profit. We should organise on the basis of need and our planet and, do you have and the a, need to direct you, away to Can to you put a figure transition. on that, the nationalisation of the energy companies? Uh, basically, the cost is we, we introduce price controls, right? Price caps. The, the price we, we, the government has the power to say this is the maximum price you can charge. We introduced a bill before the dull uh, recess. But they would to have say, to subsidise the excess, to, to wouldn't say, they? Well, say 175. The impact of that would be effectively to put the private companies out of business. The state then step in and nationalises it for extremely low cost and re-establish... Do, a, you, have, do you have a, a figure? A, a, the, the, there is no cost. In no a sense, cost. You, you introduce the price controls. It costs nothing to introduce price controls. Absolutely nothing. Right? There's no cost to doing so. The government has the power uh, to do it. Uh, and then you nationalise the, the, the uh, okay, electricity. OK, John, we'll let you come in here. There's, there's no cost. This sounds like a real simple solution. Sounds wonderful. And simplicity sometimes isn't the key to fiscal responsibility. But my key about that is very clear. Can that be done? Can we nationalise the entire energy sector in the next two weeks? Can we do that? We can introduce we price can't. controls tomorrow. And in, we can introduce it, price controls tomorrow with, with two strokes of a pen. Without interruption. In, in the real world, that is not going to help real people within the next two weeks. It might suit Paul in his theoretical world that this is the nice thing to doesn't work in the real world. What we want to do in the real world is what we're trying to do. It's what Kira said there. Make no mistake about it. And I was on the show back in March and I said, things are probably going to get a lot worse before they get better. We have no idea how long this energy crisis is going to continue. So we have to be prudent about it. And that's why Leo Varadkar said at the parliamentary party tonight that we may need money for 2023. But what are we doing about it as a government, Kira? What we're trying to do is insulate people as much as possible 
uh, in terms of financial hardship against a very volatile uh, energy market. Yes, and, and I know, and I know what we've budget. heard, what, what the government is considering. But you say this is what Paul wants. But actually, there was a survey out in the front of the Daily Mail today, which showed two thirds of people that they surveyed want a price cap. It's what people are looking for. They want certainty. Yeah. They want to be able to budget. That's what a price cap would allow them to do. And so why is it not a good idea? I think, I think the concept of a price cap is certainly one that should be debated. And there's been two different streams of thoughts on price caps in the Irish media today. On one level, Ursula von der Leyen said in her State of the Union that price caps should be considered. But then I felt that Tonish Leo Varadkar made a very fair point about why price caps have to be really considered before they're introduced, which is essentially that the government come along and set a price. And then after that price cap, the government are willing to pay whatever is the cost after that. That then gives energy companies the opportunity to ramp up the cost to the type of profits that Paul's talking about. And who, who has to hold the book? The Irish taxpayer and the government. Yeah, so that is something that's to why consider you have to when it comes to okay. price. That, and you're going to nationalise them in two weeks? You absolutely are. We've priced uh, Paul, them now. Let's be real. They're, their share prices collapsed and we, we nationalise them for almost There is nothing people now. in this country that well, not, need Not if they today. think that the government of the country is going to pick up the surplus. Yeah, but the government doesn't. If you have a socialist government, what we do is socialist say, nobody, right. nobody can have... Leo you cannot charge more than 175 for a unit of electricity, right? Okay, the government did say today, okay, they said they're not going to rule this out. They're going to look into the issue... But Leo Varadkar, the Tanisha, said this evening, this is like, this is like the bank guarantee scheme yeah, all over again. But this is like writing a blank I, check, which should, I would have thought, be utterly opposed to but, what you stand for. But that's exactly why we say we have to nationalise the energy sector. So it's true. If you have a nationalised energy sector, you still, don't have, you still don't have all, all the oil and gas that you need, right? So the state will then have to pay a certain amount for oil and gas. What does that cost? That costs about 1.1 billion euros to keep prices for households at the level they were at last winter. That, right. That's the kind of cost for Clear that, that a nationalised sector would pay for oil and gas. I mean, the government have said, the Taoiseach and the Tanisha both said, look, we are going to look into this. We haven't ruled this idea of a price cap out. But they keep talking about the concerns. There's no real appetite for this, is there? No, I think the, the Taoiseach kind of poured cold water on that earlier on in the week at the Fianna Fáil thinking. But, um, you know, Tanisha Leo-Varadkar did say that it's, it's impossible to cost, but essentially the coalition leaders have commissioned a paper on this mm. to see the pros and cons of an energy cap. But, uh, like I said, the Taoiseach's come out quite uh, strong and had said that they're going to look at measures, one-off measures, rather than a, an energy cap. And can I, can I just come in that briefly, Kira? There is no magic silver bullet about this. So price caps aren't going to solve it. Windfall tax isn't going to solve it. There's no singular issue. What is needed here is a range of measures right across Irish society, whether that's reduction in public service costs, whether it's reduction in childcare costs, uh, you know, increases in help to pay with electricity credits. It's going to be a range of issues that's going to solve right. this. And there is no magic silver bullet. And I think it's very easy to say price caps will fix it or windfall tax will fix it. It has to be a range of measures and that's what we're going to introduce in the budget. Okay, speaking of the windfall tax, let's just quickly listen to what Ursula von der Leyen had to say in her sort of address to the nation uh, at the EU Commission today. This is why we are proposing a cap on the revenues of companies that produce electricity at low costs. These companies are making revenues they never accounted for, they never even dreamt of. And don't get me wrong, in our social market economy, profits are okay, they are good. But in these times, it is wrong to receive extraordinary record revenues and profits benefiting from war and on the back of our consumers. Okay, so Kira, this is 
in essence, a windfall tax. I know it hasn't been signed off on, but it looks like it's coming. How much do we think Ireland's going to get? Do we have any idea of a figure? Well, essentially, um, 140 billion is what we think that EU member states would get. Now, based on initial assumptions, um, it, it could see Ireland in line for 3 billion euro. Um, and this is basically based on our economic share, 2.2% economic share to the EU. But uh, all those details have yet to be worked out. All right, very briefly, John, with this this money coming from this windfall tax, would this be in addition to the money that's already been set aside and is there for the budget? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, because this is a tax that's going to be introduced by the European Union, which is then, as Kira said, is going to be given out to member states based on their population, so it's extra money. All right, uh, very quickly, um, Kira, the minimum wage, uh, the Low Pay Commission made a recommendation and the government have accepted it. What exactly has been agreed? Um, so from January 1st next year... Um, uh, people on the minimum wage would be able to earn, um, I think it's, ele it's 11 euro and, and 30 cent. It's an increase of 80 cent, but uh, a lot of people really um, not happy with this today, given that the cost of living crisis and they don't see it uh, lifting up anytime next year. So there's a lot of uh, kind of setback by, by business groups. And of course, businesses are saying that they don't know how they're going to be able to afford the cost. All right, well, I want to go to Skype. Uh, the founder of HR buddy, Damien McCarthy, is joining me on the line. Uh, Damien, this is a recommendation from the Low Pay Commission. We are in the middle of a cost of living crisis. People on the minimum wage are really going to be feeling it. They need this increase. You think, however, employers can't afford it. Yes, Kira. Well, uh, there is generally an issue uh, in this country with regards to the level that we are at uh, with minimum wage rates and living wage rates. Uh, but unfortunately, now we are in a cost of living crisis and businesses are suffering. There are businesses such as the, the retail outlet in Roscommon today that received an energy bill for €21,000. Uh, this is put putting employments and jobs under threat. So the, the minimum wage increase at the moment is about a 7.6% increase for an awful lot of businesses, in particular small and medium-sized uh, employers um, who are employing most of the people that work in this country, 1.7 million of the 2.5 million people in this country at the moment that are at work are employed by small and medium-sized businesses. Mm. And these are the businesses that are under threat. So I think what is needed uh, at the moment, and I, I don't think it's time for uh, minimum wage pay rises, I think it's time to talk about ty the types of supports and backing and commitment that the government gave to small businesses during COVID to be reintroduced because that is, uh, I suppose, the large-scale problem that yeah. we are looking at again now because I know the crisis. Because you say, Damien, it's not just about those who are being paid the minimum wage. It has a knock-on effect. This raises the floor for all employees uh, in a business uh, and sort of allows them to go and look for pay raises. Yes, exactly. So for most businesses now, uh, this would be, you know, maybe a seven and a half percent, somewhere between a five and ten percent uh, addition to their payroll costs. So that quite sim simply isn't there because if someone is on 11 euro, they will look to move to 12 now. And naturally, um, uh, in fairness, um, if the minimum wage rate rises, well, then the wage rates above it uh, will be sought to rise as well. So that's the problem now that a lot of small businesses are facing. Uh, businesses like the cafe in Athlone that had a 10,000 euro energy bill last week and the business in Roscommon who has to pay a direct debit of 21,000 euro next week. Um, so the, it's almost impossible to achieve anything with regards to the minimum wage um, in this current state of this crisis. All right, I want to put your comments there to John. The timing of this is off. Businesses are under real pressure. I, I disagree and let me explain why. One of the most important jobs the government has to do is balance 
the work that we try to do for both employers and employees and workers. That's something we're trying to do. We've tried to balance that massively with employers, and Dean will agree over the last two and a half years with the amount of supports we've given with COVID. But now it's time to make sure that workers as well get that increase that they deserve. And it's really down to what my party want to do, which is to make work pay if you're going to work hard. And it's not nothing to sneer at, Paul. You're, work you're is a very... the minimum work, wage. Paul, it is... You're we reducing, are not reducing... Yes, you are. I'm sorry. Yes, do you know what the inflation again, sorry, rate is? Here we are again with fake news. We have increased the minimum you know wage five times. If you wouldn't interrupt me, Paul, we've increased the minimum wage five times over the last six years. It's now increased again because we want to make work pay. And if you're in this country... And if you're going to work, we're going to make sure that you get a fair bang for your buck. And it's all well and good for Paul to shout from the sidelines because whatever figure I come out with tonight, Paul, uh, sorry, Kira, whatever figure I come out with tonight, Paul's going to double it because that's auction politics because he'll never be in government and he'll never have to deal with the consequences. Paul, they're introducing a real-term pay cut for the lowest paid people in our society. Why do you say that? Because they're increasing... 10.50 to 11.30. Yeah, they're increasing it by 7.6% when inflation is running at 10%. And for low-income workers, inflation in reality is significantly higher than that because they're spending a much greater proportion of their income on energy and food and fuel and things that inflation is running significantly beyond 10%. So this is a pay cut in real terms. But you want... Past, you don't want it to go to 11.30 or even the living wage of, we think we I think, 13.10. We've seen 15 euros. Which is a real living wage, something that people can actually survive on. In the last 10 years in this country, uh, profits have trebled from about 40 billion to 120 billion while wages have remained stagnant about 80 billion in total the across Thomas the entire economy. The was speaking economy. this evening. He said an extreme jump going from 11.30 to 15 euro, that puts jobs at risk. Those very jobs Absolutely. that those people need, Absolutely. they'll, we, they'll we, lose hours people, or they'll lose their job. People, Do you not accept that? No, people need to have jobs that actually pay. We have a situation where, where 130,000 people are they, in work poverty. But so do you accept working. what and Damien this, is saying there? The they, state, they, they do need jobs, but this, businesses need to survive to be able to employ the people. So small businesses that genuinely can't afford to pay should be supported. No question, right? We're not against small businesses. We think small businesses should be supported. But the situation, the state currently subsidises low pay in this country. There's 43,000 households in receipt of the working family payment, which means they're at work, they're not earning enough to survive, and the state then is paying extra. That is subsidising low-pay employers. We're a low-pay country. Just, One in five workers are low-paid. And precisely the reason that was given there, that if you raise the minimum wage, will other wages go up? Well, for me, that seems like a good reason to do it, not a bad reason. Uh, yeah, the Low-Pay Commission actually said that they wouldn't increase it further by uh, €11.30 per hour per hour because of the reasons that if they were to increase it significantly, businesses would suffer more, so they were trying to balance it. And in fairness... But it was a delicate balancing act, Yeah, and in fairness, Tánis Leo did say this evening that on budget aid there would be, you know, low-cost loans for businesses, grants, and that they would help them further with energy credits. Uh, yeah, and he did also mention the living wage, isn't, didn't he, yeah, today? So, so, so the Low Pay Commission has set an indicative, indicative rate um, that the living wage should be €13.10, and the government... Now, uh, employers can pay that from next year if they want to. It's not mandatory yet, but the government's plan is to phase that in and, and for that to be yeah. mandatory come 2026. And I suppose, John, that is the point and a fair point that Paul was making. If the government recognises that 13.10 is a fair living wage, is the wage that you need in this country to have a basic standard of living, then 11.30 an hour means that people are not Where? going to have a decent standard of living. Does that not follow? What I think in relation to that is that we are moving into that low pay system in 2023 where those prices are going to come in at 1310. And we have to do it in a measured, 
safely economic, responsible way. And that's what we're doing by moving into a living wage. But what Paul has said... But in there, the interim, people are going to be earning a wage that does not allow yeah, them but, to have a standard of but living. But in the interim, it has now been increased again for the fifth time in six years. And it's been increased in a responsible way. And the reason you have to be responsible about it, Kira, is, okay. like Paul said, if we were to go ahead and go from 11 quid to 15 quid, you're going to burst the ball. You're not going to be able to pay for right. important things that this country needs. And it's irresponsible financial management to say we should pay 15 euro okay. like that. It's We're going to have wrong. to leave that uh, there for now. My thanks to Kira, uh, Damien and uh, Paul and John will be staying with us. But after the break, one family's fight for cystic fibrosis medication. Claire Brock has a special report. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Well, you're very welcome back. Right now, 35 Irish families are in the midst of a battle to gain access to a life-changing drug for the treatment of cystic fibrosis. While this drug, called Caftrio, is currently being provided to 140 children in Ireland between the ages of 6 and 11, a pricing dispute between the pharmaceutical company Vertex and the HSE, 35 children with a particular genotype cannot gain access to it. Well, Claire Brock met with a family who are fighting for access to this drug. Mornings are a busy time for the Kennedy family. When 10-year-old Matthew wakes up, he starts the day with physio to clear his lungs. And his cystic fibrosis means a routine of medication is required in order to keep him from hospital. On top of physio, Matthew has to obviously carry what we call creons. It's a, a medication uh, with him for food. So he doesn't digest fats like a normal person. So every time he eats food, he has to take these creons. 
he gets lots of problems with CF with his bowels. So he's been in hustle with his bowels for blockages and things like that. Uh, so he has to take those day to day. As well as that, he will take uh, laxatives, uh, multivitamins. Uh, he'll take a, a range of different medications uh, to keep him as healthy as possible. But it takes little to trigger a hospital stay. If Matthew gets a cold or uh, any sort of little illness like a small temperature or something like that you know the, the normal child will be given calpol and will be fine matthew will do probably two weeks in hospital straight away tell us when you heard about the caftrio drug um, and you knew about it and you knew it was being approved what you hoped for caftrio treats cf at a genetic level so it doesn't treat the impact of what cf will have on his body it actually stops cf from ha happening to his body so it opens up a lot of stuff for Matthew, like, we don't know uh, exactly will we need to do physio anymore, will he need to carry creons as much, uh, his hospitalizations will stop, essentially. Um, it'll turn his life around. Like, Matthew will live a, a normal, happy life. Like, that's exactly what this drug will do. But while the drug is being provided to 140 children in Ireland between the ages of 6 and 11, Matthew won't be given Caftrio because of a pricing row between the HSE and Vertex Pharmaceuticals. He's among 35 children with a particular genotype excluded from accessing the drug. It's just stuck in stalemate. Like it's, it's sitting between these two organisations. Uh, it hasn't moved anywhere in the last 12 months. Critically, you say, between the ages of 10 and 12, while you are waiting for this drug, that's when problems can become irreversible. The frustrating part of it is, like, it's, it's great. Matthew's age 10 now. He will get that drug when he turns 12. But between now and 12, any damage that's done to Matthew's lungs, bowels, uh, he's had operations on his nose constantly, they, they, it, the drug is not going to reverse those. It's not going to reverse. If Matthew's uh, lung function drops to 60% uh, because of scarring on his lungs, it's not going to fix that. It will maintain what he's at when he gets there. It's an all too familiar struggle for the family as Luke's niece also had cystic fibrosis. Our, our family has unfortunately firsthand seen what CF can do to a child. Uh, my niece was the first person we ever heard with cystic fibrosis. Uh, Neve has the exact same mutations as, as Matthew uh, and Neve just kept getting hit with bugs, sickness, kept going into hospital uh, and when you get CF and you get particular types of bugs, things can go downhill very quickly uh, and that's what happened with Neve. So Neve passed away at age 11, she has the exact same mutations as Matthew. Uh, so we are obviously very stressed that Matthew may get hit with one of these type of bugs and suddenly go down that path. Because you have that experience of it, you've seen it in your own family. Exactly. And that's a worry you're living with now every day. Matthew is joining his mum and dad and extended family at the Dáil protest today. So I know that it's because of my drug and I haven't got it yet. And, and I know it's because it's basically going to make me a lot better and healthier. And I think it would make me a little faster. Um, it would definitely make me more, like, not as tired in football, you know? 
I, I'm hopeful that the Minister for Health will see there's 35 kids that are being excluded for ridiculous contract reasons and will just step in. Claire Brock reporting there, speaking to Luke and to Matthew Kennedy. Uh, well, earlier today, Virgin Media news reporter Ashley Kushla asked the Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly, if there would be any progress on the case. Unfortunately, the drug company involved, who we have a long-standing um, contract with, did not include 35 children. Uh, and the HSC is having to uh, negotiate with that company uh, on that issue. Um, I'm fully aware of the parents' position. Um, I've spoken to CF Ireland. Um, I've spoken to, it, it will continue to be raised. I want to see a, a, a resolution to this. The HSC wants to see a resolution to this. But we must give the HSC space to negotiate with the drug company. Paul Murphy and John McGahan are still with me and I'm also joined by Philip Watt, the CEO of Cystic Fibrosis Ireland. Uh, you're very welcome to the programme, Philip. Uh, listening to the Minister for Health there, he said, look, you've got to give the HSC space to try and negotiate with the pharmaceutical company here. How long has this standoff been going on? Uh, it's like a Mexican standoff. It's been going on for at least four months and probably more. And there's a row between the drugs company who th think that the drug is not included in the agreement of 2017 and the HSC who are insisting that it is. And, and we're calling for an independent arbitrator to come in and decide who is in the right. So the children in this country, the 140 children who are entitled to this drug, when did they start taking it? So they started taking it in May of this year. It was approved by the European Medicines Agency in January. And then 140 children who are aged 6 to 11 with CF got access in May. And these families, uh, the 35 families concerned, were expecting their children to get it as well. And they were told by their doctors, and they were totally shocked as we were, to say, your child is not included, even though they will benefit just as much as the 140 other and children. There's no question about that, is there, that this would be effective for these 35 children? Absolutely. It's been... Uh, That's not disputed. ...certified by the European Medicines Agency and the Food and Drug Administration in America. That They all say that these, these children will benefit. So ultimately, Paul Murphy, this seems to be a commercial dispute, mm -hmm. isn't it? Well, that's what's disgusting about it. I mean, here you have a major multinational corporation basically holding 35 children's health <coughs> to ransom to try and get as much as possible. Well, to be clear, now to be clear, uh, Vertex aren't here to defend themselves. To be clear, they say they have an agreement, a portfolio agreement with the HSC and that it didn't include access to sure. this particular drug. It is a commercial agreement. It so, is a contract. So I, I think there, there from are, their point of there, view. There are questions there to be asked about how is it possible that such a contract was concluded that they can interpret in the way that they're interpreting to exclude these, these children. That's and the HSC are interpreting it exactly. differently. That's, that's a question for the HSE and the government. Um, I, I think it's essential that the government meets fully with CFI, meets fully with the parents who are the families, uh, and does everything possible to get the drug. But the point I'm making is it raises a broader question about the, the private ownership of this intellectual property. I mean, this, this company sold over $5 billion worth of this drug last year. They've already made huge okay. amounts of money. 
over it. And unfortunately, the Irish government, even at a WTO <coughs> level, stands over this system of private monopolies, you know, able to hold people's lives in their hand, restrict access right, to medicine okay, to maximise profit. It clearly all should be done on a public, not-for-profit base, with research being open, being accessible and so on. This came right. up in terms of COVID, but it's, it is more generally applicable to stop having these Look, situations, which we have quite regularly. Okay, whether or not you agree with you know, a private company, and we don't know what they've invested to get this you know, drug to the markets, um, Paul, we, you know, we don't have that information to hand at the moment. Ultimately... It is a commercial dispute, John. And you have 35 families here yeah. on the sideline and 35 children who are being affected by this negatively and it doesn't seem to be any closer to being resolved. And I think what is really important is that we actually just move away from the rhetoric around private companies and contracts and all of this and realise that we saw Luke and Matthew there that there's 35 children and 35 families in this country going to sleep tonight that don't have access to medicine that they need to make their lives better, to make enhance their lives, their quality of lives. Uh, and it's disgusting. It really is. Um, I spoke with my... responsible for it? Well, it's very, very clear that the responsibility lies between Vertex, which is a pharmaceutical company, and whatever they believe was in their contract. But just to be clear about it... But they're, um, no, they're disputing that. And I think these, what, what these families have an issue with is that they feel like pawns here as exactly, they just sit yeah. around and wait for either the pharmaceutical company or the HSC to compromise here. And the families wait and the families and the children suffer. I agree, absolutely. So what is the solution to it? The fact that this has been going on for four months... Uh, and for the minister to say we still need space, I think four months is space enough. And I think now what the government really needs to do to get this for these, to get important medicine for these 35 children is to use as much political pressure as possible, for the minister to use as much political pressure as possible on both the HSE and this pharmaceutical company yeah. to come to the table, get an agreement and get this medicine to these children. Simple as. It sounds simple. Why has this not happened? I mean, has there been engagement, as far as you're aware, Philip, between you know the two bodies responsible for ultimately coming to an agreement that will facilitate these children getting this drug? No, as, as far as we understand, there's been like a Mexican standoff between the HSC and Vertex, and it's both of the, their responsibilities to sort this issue. It's not just one of the parties. Do we I mean, understand, do we believe that they have met at all? Have there been discussions, they, they negotiations? They, ha they haven't met uh, in at least a month, and um, we understand there will be a meeting soon, which is really positive, uh, but we are really concerned that the same standoff is going to continue. These children need this drug now. We can't wait to reform, you know, the world policy on pharmaceuticals. You know, we, 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 I agree, well, but we need to I, have that discussion to make I, sure it doesn't happen. But I agree, absolutely. the government needs to act you know, now we, to do we what need it can. The, they yep. need these drugs now, and it's up to both the HSE and Vertex to come to, to agreement to do that. And, and you it, believe there has been some movement? Do you think there has been enough political well, pressure well, now? Well, I, well I, I genuinely think that the minister is concerned to resolve this issue as quickly as possible, but I am worried that, um, you know, the, the standoff will continue between the HSE and the Vertex and our children are going to be caught in the middle. So we need, if, if they can't resolve it, we would call for an independent arbitrator to come in and resolve it for them. Because you can see the stress and the toll that it's taking, um, not only on little Matthew, but hopefully he's a little bit more oblivious, but on his dad there. Well, absolutely. But on the other side, of, we can see the impact of this drug on adults 
who are now working for the first time, either part-time or full-time, are now having families of their own. We can see the impact on children who are now, um, you know, getting full-time schooling as opposed to being in hospital all the time. You know, it, 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 there's amazing impacts from, from this drug. It has revolutionised CF care in Ireland, so we need it now. Okay, um, just um, to be clear, we did get a statement from the HSE. They said the application for pricing and reimbursement for a subset of the licensed population in a 6 to 11 year old cohort for CAFTRIO remains under consideration with the HSE. We're going to have to leave it there, but my thanks to Philip Watt. Uh, after the break, we will be taking a look at the other side of the monarchy debate in the UK and what is happening to those protesting the new king. back well on this programme. Like much of the media world, we have been reporting on Queen Elizabeth's death since last Thursday, discussing and reflecting on the outpouring of love from the UK and beyond for the former monarch. But as British police come under fire for arrests made of anti-monarchy protests, are we really seeing the reality of the people's sentiment towards the Crown? Well, earlier I spoke to journalist Ella Whelan, who is based in London, and I began by asking her if she understood the outpouring of grief that we've all witnessed and the blanket coverage of the death of the Queen by the UK media. I understand it, um, but I have to say after, you know, quite a few days of... Uh, the blanket media coverage and the interviews with people talking about um, seeing the Queen, you know, somewhere in the distance on a Thursday during a parade. It's starting to get pretty difficult to be a Republican, um, which I am. Um, but there is, I think, you know, most people understand that this is a historic moment, whether or not you're a supporter of the Royals um, or you're not, like I am. Um, but the the, the kind of more concerning thing is that there's been a neglect of understanding on the other side, which is that two things are happening during this period. One is that a woman has died and people are paying their respects and that woman is the queen, was the queen. The second thing that's happening, which is just as important, if not more important, is that a new monarch is having a crown placed on his head. And that raises lots of political questions, constitutional questions that should be talked about, should be discussed, certainly in a public forum, certainly on um, news uh, stations, radio stations and in the papers. And there's been a kind of a real uh, a kibosh has been put on that kind of discussion, any kind of criticism of the monarchy. And I think that is a problem. Uh, for politics more broadly. Yeah, and speaking of criticisms, there has been criticisms of the police in the UK for the response to any person who has tried to express what might be seen as an anti-royalist or an anti-monarchist viewpoint. Bring me through the reaction to that. Oh, well, it's been quite extreme, actually. You've had kind of the, the protests have varied from sort of, I imagine what you'd kind of classify as crass, 
you know, heckling funerals and things like that, which doesn't do the Republican cause any good. Uh, there was a kind of a fuss in Westminster uh, where somebody who held up a sign saying, not my king, was accosted by police. And then another person uh, went down to do an experiment, held up a blank sign and was questioned by police. And he said to the police, well, if I write not my king on this, are you going to arrest me? And the police said, well, yeah, probably, because someone might get offended by it. So there's, you know, there's, <laughs> there's a real clampdown on any kind of uh, freedom of protest. There has also been backlash, hasn't there, against some businesses who attempted to close as a mark of respect to the death of the uh, Queen. And there are a number of businesses closing, cancellations of, you know, football matches, perhaps surgical appointments being cancelled because Monday, the day of the funeral, uh, is a bank holiday. Do you have any issue with that? I do have an issue with it. And it's, uh, you know, on, on the one hand, you have to, I think you have to keep yourself in check when you're a Republican because it's, uh, it's you're not in the mindset of someone who has this great feeling of adoration for the royals. I can't get my head around that. Um, but I, you know, I respect that that's a position that people hold. Um, but the kind of um, national shutdown in the name of the Queen, as lots of people have put it, is is kind of crazy. I mean, we had the Met Office here, the Met Office, um, tweeting that they were only going to report and predict the weather a day at a time as a mark of respect. I mean, what what's going yeah, on, you know? I'm just wondering, because I'm conscious that you've said, look, you are a Republican, you don't believe in the idea of the monarchy. How many people in the UK have opinions, just briefly, Ella, do you think, in line with yours? I don't know. It's a conversation that's kind of difficult. I think it ebbs and flows. I don't think Republicans have really covered themselves in glory over the last few years because it often comes across as a sort of um, snobby sort of, oh, you and your commemorative plates kind of thing, which is you know not something that I think. And I think it's a kind of just a, a horrible way of treating people. But there is, you know, the problem with Charles is that he's far more political than his mother. Uh, he's far more controversial. He's done some things in the last kind of uh, 24 hours in terms of being caught poo-pooing at servants and, you know, reinstating his controversial brother, Prince Andrew, into certain public roles that I think won't exactly cover him in glory. All right. But all we can do is raise the issue and say, you know, in the 21st century of, you know, uh, meant to be an advanced democracy, do we need a king? And I think we don't. Oh. Ella Whelan uh, speaking to me there a little earlier this evening. Paul Murphy and John McGann are still with me. John, start with you. Do you think it's an appropriate time, as many in a country, I suppose, are grieving, to air any anti-monarchist sentiment? I, I think there's always a time for opposing views to be heard. That's absolutely the case. Uh, if you take myself, for example, I'm a Republican. I'm an Irish nationalist. I can be both of those things while at the same time realising and recognising that Queen Elizabeth and her death is a massive, massive thing for so many people in the United Kingdom. It's also a massive thing for so many people who identify themselves as British, that live on the island of Ireland, and for so many British people who have come to live, work and make Ireland their home. So I can be, I can be both things, and I am both things. Uh, and I do think there is a time and a place for that debate to take place. Uh, as Alice said there, stuff like heckling at a funeral, no matter what it is, that's crass. That's a total lack of decency beyond the old belief. Mm -hmm. By all means, have the debate. Have the debate about monarchy. 
I think have it, it now. It's okay to have it. But why why have it now? Why not have it in five or six days when the woman is buried? You know what I mean? Uh, a few days uh, between a debate here or there isn't really going to change the thing. It's about respect. And I am very, very clear about that. Uh, when I look at it there, if you... I can't even imagine it, I suppose, when you think about it, that Elizabeth was queen for 70 years. So most people yeah. for their entire lifetimes have had this figurehead. And I think the UK don't really know what to do with themselves. Yeah, and what we're looking at now is actually live pictures um, of the queen, um, obviously, uh, in Westminster Hall and people queuing up um, for hours and hours on end to pay the respects. Uh, Paul, are you surprised by the lack of debate, as Ella sees it, about the future of the monarchy at this time? Well, the debate's being shut down. I mean, there is a huge campaign from the establishment in Britain to generate a pro-monarchy sentiment and to try to rehabilitate and increase the popularity of Charles. I mean, I, I saw opinion polls that went back over a number of years. He's been quite deeply unpopular, um, linked to Diana, linked to the various controversies he's, he's been involved in taking cash from various dodgy autocrats in the Middle East, for example. Um, but his popularity now is up to over 60%. It's doubled, right? right? No, that's, that's, that's on the record. Don't worry, people. Can yeah, I know, I know, that. I know. Um, <laughs> but if we do not have uh, King right. Charles III here this evening to defend so, himself either. So, so there's a big campaign to rehabilitate uh, or to kind of ensure popularity of the monarchy. And I, I think for Republicans, for those who stand for the basic idea of democracy, that people should have the right to elect their leaders as opposed to having subjects, having people living in palaces, sitting on billions of pounds at a time when there's a crisis, but now is yeah. the time precisely to have that debate. You don't think that the tone and the timing of this is all off? I mean, you obviously issued I your mean, own well, statements the day after the Queen um, died where I mean, you the, questioned the, the only Maybe there was other, but the, the only heckling at any kind of funeral that I saw was in relation to Andrew. Was someone was pointing out, and I won't speak about it here, but what Andrew was alleged to have done, and which now he is being rehabilitated through this process uh, as well. But the idea that people are being arrested for holding up blank pieces of paper or for holding up signs saying, not my king, I mean, that is inherently extremely yeah. anti and undemocratic, like the very institution of the monarchy, as well as being right. a symbol of imperialism, racism, colonialism, All right. and so on. All right, look, we're going to have to leave it there. But my thanks to Paul and to John and to all of our guests this evening. Our programme is available, as always, as a podcast on all major platforms. And you can find us on Instagram tonight, BMTV. But from all of the late team here, good night. Take care. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. 